At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. So we're getting back into Genesis uh, chapter 2 and 3 is where we are this morning. You guys remember last week we began this sermon series. I'll say a little bit more about it on family. Last week we looked at the origin of family in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and forward. And this week we're skipping ahead a few verses to Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. And I'm going to read all the way through chapter 3 verse 13 and then just verse 21. So it's a little funky reading this morning, but um, really helpful as we continue to step through the book of Genesis and kind of studying it through the lens of family and relationship. That's kind of the question we're asking, and that's what we want God to speak into, is what is family, the blessing of family, the brokenness of family, and how can we live in relationships in ways that honor God? So Genesis chapter 2, verses 15, verse 15 through Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, and then verse 21. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what the man would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last. Is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to be make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of the both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tis better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. That quote is from a poem entitled In Memoriam by the English poet Alfred Lloyd Tennyson. Tis better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. It's just one line from a pretty lengthy poem, but this proverb-like sentence is uniquely catchy, and it inspires us to reflect. It inspires us to wonder, is it better to have the joy of loving someone and the pain of losing that someone Or is it better to have never loved that person at all and avoid the pain of losing them? And I think that whole thought experiment captivates us because we all feel and can relate with the tension that it highlights. On the one hand, we want relationships. We want community. But on the other hand, we know that when we enter into relationships, when we enter into community, then we potentially set ourselves up to feel a lot of pain. Because as much as we want and need people in our lives, people can hurt us. People can betray us, disappoint us. They may leave us altogether. As a pastor, I very often hear these both equal but opposite complaints from people related to their church experiment experience. On the one hand, there are many people who've come to me and lamented, I'm lonely at this church. I attend here, but I don't have any community here. But then, on the other hand, there are many other people who complain to me, oh, I've got community here, but being in community is hard. Being in relationship has gotten me hurt. Somebody said something, somebody did something, and now I'm wounded. So do you see how these complaints are equal but opposite? One group can't find community, so they're feeling hurt. The other group has found community, and they're feeling hurt too. So you feel the push-pull there. We know that we weren't made to be lonely, but we also know that we weren't made to be hurt. By others. Well, this morning we're continuing our sermon series, what we've titled Family, Why Bother? And this series of messages, we're exploring the book of Genesis. And Genesis is brimming with family and community dynamics. In Genesis, we can learn much about God's design and purpose for the family. And by extension, 
we learn his design and purpose for all human relationships and community. And today, we're looking at the first family, and by studying the first family, we are very quickly going to see the first family conflict. These, truths are, these verses are going to show us the truth that, yes, we are made for community, but sin divides us, separates us. We were made for community, but sin separates us from God, and it separates us from one another, leading to all sorts of relational damage and distress. So let's open up the book of Genesis and see how this plays out in the life of Adam and Eve. So you remember Genesis chapter 1, the writer describes one powerful act of creation after another. God speaks creation into existence, and then he brings order and form to all of the chaos, creating a beautiful and livable habitat for all of his Creatures. And throughout the account in Genesis chapter 1 of creation, seven times God says that what he created was good. God saw that the light was good, verse 3. God saw that the skies and dry land were good, verse 10. God saw that the plants and vegetation were good, verse 12, and so on. Then God's creative work was finished at the end of day 6. And it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So this simple but important truth comes through with great emphasis. God's creation is good. God's creation is very good. And that makes what happens next stand out all the more. In chapter 2, we get a little more detailed creation, uh, detailed description of Adam's creation, the first man, the first And after God creates Adam, it says in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. So as Bible readers, this discrepancy should catch our attention. God saw that creation was good. Everything that he made was very good. Seven times over it says good, 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 but then not good. The writer is trying to catch our attention. He's saying, hey, by breaking this pattern of good, 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 not good, I'm making an important point here. You've got to get this. It is not good that man should be alone. In other words, we were made for community. We weren't made to be lonely, isolated, or reclusive. So in the next few verses, God works to remedy this not good situation. He puts the man into a deep sleep takes one of his ribs, and with the rib, he creates a companion, the woman, who will quickly become his wife. In the next few verses, God brings the woman to the man, and upon seeing the woman, Adam responds with this poetic exclamation describing his new attachment to the woman. Verse 23, he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he really says two things here. First, he says that she's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And this was a way for him to say that we are now a family unit. So by comparison today, if we want to say that we're family with someone, then we say that we are of the same blood. We say that we are blood relatives. But in the ancient world, they didn't say they were of the same blood. They said they were of the same bone and flesh. 
So Adam says to Eve, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, our marriage relationship constitutes a new family, the first family. The second thing Adam does is name the woman. He says, she shall be called woman. And this act of naming the woman was an act of claiming the woman, in a sense. Adam was, in essence, saying that she is mine and I am hers. So he wasn't claiming her in a domineering, I own you sort of way. Rather, he was expressing his loving leadership for her and his commitment to her. And we see there that commitment and love in the next two verses, verses 24 and 25. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, one family. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So a new marriage makes a new family. The man is to break away from mommy and daddy and hold fast to his wife. They are one flesh. They are one family through marriage. And in this relationship, they experience freedom and safety to the degree that they are able to be naked and without shame before one another. They have nothing to hide from one another. They experience a joyful intimacy together in relationship. This was God's design. We were all made for community. Whether we get married or not, we were made for friendship, for partnership, to have companions, to have family, to have people in our lives with whom we feel safe from judgment. We feel free to be ourselves. We feel free in their presence. That's what Adam and Eve originally experienced. That's what we were made for. But that is not the end of the story. We were made for community, but sin separates us. Sin separates us from God and sin separates us from one another. And we're going to see that play out in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to approach these verses by asking the question, how can we experience reconciliation in relationship? So if Genesis chapter 3 is the undoing of relationships, then maybe we can reverse engineer this whole story and find out, by God's grace, how to experience reconciliation, both with God and with one another. So first, what we see here is that we must listen to the truth of God's voice. If we are to experience reconciliation, if we are to find healing for broken relationships, we must listen to the truth of God's voice. So immediately after their marriage, in chapter 2, the scene shifts to chapter 3, and an exchange between the woman and this crafty creature, the serpent. And their conversation starts off with the serpent asking Eve, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. So notice the craftiness of the serpent here. On the one hand, he's trying to get her to question God's word and command. But on the other hand, he has misquoted to them what God's word was. Because God had originally told them that they could eat from any tree they liked, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent says, did God actually say that you shall not eat? of any tree from the garden. 
So the way that the serpent frames the question makes God sound more restrictive and less benevolent than he actually is. Well, the woman is drawn in by his subtlety, and then she responds in verses 3 and 4. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So what the woman does is correct the serpent, but then she herself adds to the command. She says that God disallowed them to even touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But again, that's not true. He simply said they shouldn't eat it. So you can see how the serpent is luring the woman in, sowing seeds of doubt, causing her to second guess and question God's good command for her life. And once he's got her there, he then switches strategies in verse 5, and he directly contradicts God's word. He says, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6 then says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. She saw it was delightful to her eyes. It was desirous to make her wise. So she ate the fruit and she gave some to her husband who ate also. So they refused to trust God. And they refused to rely on him and keep the boundary that he set for them, and this is the start of all the brokenness in the world. Their relationship with God is broken, and as we will see, their relationship is fractured as well. This division begins because they listen to the voice of the liar instead of listening to the truth of God's voice. In Matthew chapter 4, just before Jesus begins his ministry, he's led into the wilderness for a time of fasting, and solitude. And the idea seems to be that he would spend focused and intimate time with his father before he enters into all of the difficulties and trials of his ministry. But during this time in the wilderness, all alone fasting, Jesus is tempted. The gospel writers tell us that the devil himself comes to Jesus and tempts him three different times. He tempts Jesus with endless provision He tempts him with a lot of power, and he tempts him with earthly glory. And each one of these offers would have allowed Jesus to avoid going to the cross. They were ways of bypassing the Father's will and word for Jesus' life. Jesus could have had provision, power, and glory without having to endure the cross. However, Each time, Jesus responds to these temptations by quoting Scripture. Three out of three times, he responds to the tempter by saying, it is written. Furthermore, one of these times, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So you see how Jesus succeeded in listening to the truth of God's voice where Adam and Eve failed. This is a crucial step in being reconciled to God and working towards reconciliation with others, listening to the truth of God's voice. Because when we listen to and receive God's word in the gospel, then we are reconciled to God. We receive the good news that Jesus lived, died, and rose so that we could be forgiven of our sin and have a renewed relationship with God. 
When we receive the truth of the gospel, our relationship with God is restored. But not only that, once we trust in Christ, then He makes us agents of reconciliation in the world. He makes us peacemakers so that we now show up in the world with a heart to see reconciliation happen. Being a follower of Christ, receiving the gospel, His word, and then becoming a follower of Christ changes our whole perspective on relational conflict. Because as Christians, we have experienced God's endless mercy, and now we want to show that kind of mercy to others who have hurt us. When we listen to the gospel, when we receive God's word in Christ, we become God's children, and so we know the incredible patience of our Heavenly Father, and so now we want to show that kind of patience to those who are around us, even those who've hurt us. And as followers of Christ, we have heard the word of the cross and how he endured the painful links of making reconciliation with God possible. And so now we too, like our Savior, want to forbear and endure with difficult people to show them Christ-like love. So church, like Jesus, let's feed on God's word and let's put ourselves in a community of people who are going to speak God's word to us and let's sit under faithful preaching of the scriptures so that we can hear the truth of God's voice over and over again, correcting us, encouraging us, enabling us to be reconciled with God and reconcilers in the world. Listen to the truth of God's voice Secondly, we learn from this first family conflict, we must put off false ways of defending ourselves. Put off false ways of defending yourself. So right after the first couple eats the fruit and disobeys God, there's a change in them that occurs. Verse 7 says that, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. So previously we were told that they were naked and without shame. The couple had nothing to hide from one another, and so no need to cover up. But now that sin has come into the world, there is a need to cover up. There is a need to hide from one another. And it's no different in their relationship with God. Verse 8 says that they hear God entering the garden, approaching them, And the man and the woman hide from the presence of God. There used to be this free-flowing intimacy between the man and the woman and God, and now they are separated from one another, covering up and hiding. And when God confronts them, this just continues. God first addresses Adam and asks him if he ate from the tree which he commanded him not to eat. And Adam responds in verse 12. He says, the woman... Whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. So these words are not Adam physically covering himself up, as he did with the leafy loincloth, but he is still covering himself up in a way. He's defending himself. He defends himself by pointing the blame away from himself. He says, God, the woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now notice here that everything Adam says is true. It is true that 
God gave the woman to the man. And it is true that the woman gave the man the fruit to eat. Adam is not lying here. Nevertheless, he is using these true statements to cover up the deeper truth of his own failure. We could call this false way of showing up the blamer or the blame shifter. It's a way of showing up that defends and protects Adam. Well, what about the woman? God next asks her, verse 13. He says to her, what have you done? And she responds, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So again, what she says is true. The serpent did deceive her, but this again seems to be a strategy for pointing the finger elsewhere besides herself. And we could, show, we could call this false way of showing up the victim, playing the victim. She diverts taking full responsibility by highlighting the role of the serpent. And with the man playing the blamer, with the woman playing the victim, with neither one owning their part the way they should, they are going to be separated, divided, because they are not going to look at themselves so much. The man points his finger at God, points his finger at the woman, the woman points her finger at the serpent, and this conflict is going nowhere fast. It is just going to deepen and deepen and deepen because it's a, you did this, yeah, but you did that sort of situation, and reconciliation is not going to happen. Instead, they are going to have to put off these false ways of defending themselves. This was a problem that Jesus himself addressed in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, he has this memorable line. He says, you hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye so that you can see the speck in your brother's eye. Jesus says that it is easier for us to see a speck in someone else's eye than for us to see the log in our own eye. It's a form of self-protection for me to point out your splinter-sized speck even when I have a protruding, lengthy log sticking out of my own eye. But this is part of the fallen human nature now. It's our instinct to self-protect, to cover up, to defend ourselves, to blame others, to play the victim, and to avoid taking responsibility. Think about the relational conflicts that you're in the middle of. Maybe it involves your spouse, other family members, friends, co-workers, a neighbor. Within that experience of conflict, are you quicker to criticize the other person or to examine yourself? Do you spend most of your time reflecting on and talking about what they did wrong, how they screwed up, or are you equally concerned with your own role in the matter. Just like Adam and Eve, when conflict happens, harsh things are said, hurtful actions occur, and we feel shame. We feel exposed. We feel vulnerable. And so we too are capable of defending ourselves in these ways. But if we're going to work through relational conflict, we have to set aside these false strategies for protecting ourselves, for defending ourselves. And instead, for every one criticism we have of someone else, we should take 10 looks at ourselves. 
and judge ourselves to a far greater degree. And I don't mean that we should condemn ourselves. I don't mean that we should wallow in self-hatred. I don't mean that we should allow ourselves to be abused by any means. But at the same time, we must be willing to take the plank out of our own eye. We've got to set aside the blame or we've got to set aside the victim and instead step into the light, look into the mirror, and be honest about ourselves. Listen to the truth of God's voice, put aside false ways of defending yourself, and a final step towards reconciliation. Receive the gracious provision of God. Receive the gracious provision of God. So after God hears the man and woman defend themselves, he then responds by cursing the serpent and then letting Adam and Eve know that life is going to be different now that sin has entered into the world. Adam is going to work by the sweat of his brow. The woman is going to have pain in childbirth and life is going to be broken in many other ways as we see evidence by the news headlines day after day. But after that in verse 21... It says that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. So whereas the man and the woman made skimpy loincloths out of leaves, God now provides for them a better, fuller covering. And furthermore, this covering comes at the expense of a sacrifice. It's a garment of animal skin, the verse says. So there had to be a sacrifice, an animal that died for them to have this covering. And this is God's way of saying, you don't have to hide from my presence. And you don't have to cover your shame. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to protect yourself. I will cover you. And my provision for you is infinitely more sufficient than what you could manufacture for yourself. And this act in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, is one of the earliest indications that God had a plan to make the ultimate sacrifice. God had a plan to provide the ultimate covering through the Lord Jesus. Because the truth is that on our own, we cannot hide from God. Try as we might, we cannot hide from God. But the good news is, we don't have to hide from God. Through Christ, God has made a way for us to be fully accepted back into God's presence with no fear of God's judgment because on the cross, Jesus was judged in our place. And the truth is that on our own, we could never cover over our shame. Our sin is too great. Our failures are too many. But the good news is that we don't have to cover our shame on our own. On the cross, Jesus carried the burden of our shame so that we could receive a new, secure identity as God's beloved children. And here's why this truth is so important when it comes to relational conflict. If we are secure in who we are in Christ, forgiven, beloved, safe, accepted, if we are secure in who we are in Christ, then we don't have to win every fight. We don't have to take every criticism personally. We don't have to prove ourselves, justify ourselves by winning the argument. 
In Christ, we are free to be honest about our faults and failures because the gospel is that God loves us despite our faults and failures. So we can be honest about them. You know, we started off this morning by asking whether relationships are worth it. Is it better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all? It's an interesting thought experiment. But the truth is that we were made for loving relationships. We were made to be in community. But the sad truth is that our communion with God is disrupted because of sin and our communion with one another is broken because of sin too. We can learn from this first family conflict that the truth of God's voice will provide the encouragement and correction necessary for us to work towards reconciliation. And we learn that endlessly defending ourselves and pointing the finger away from ourselves doesn't solve anything. We can set aside these false ways of defending ourselves. And thankfully, we also learn that we are free to not have to defend ourselves. We have an advocate in Jesus. We are covered by the grace of his sacrifice. And so I urge you, friends, receive the gracious provision of God. Be clothed in Christ Jesus. Be in Christ Jesus, one of God's beloved children, all by grace, purchased by the cross, free to be who God made us, broken and beloved. And let's live out who we are, peacemakers, And let's take up God's ministry of reconciliation as we preach the gospel and as we work for peace in the world. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today. 